Gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, once again, as we come before you in prayer, reflecting upon the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your amazing grace and goodness and mercy, Lord God. And Father, we pray that as we walk through this text this morning and in the upcoming weeks as we continue to reflect upon the first advent of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that uh, throughout this month, we would be more focused upon, upon you and all that you have done for us and not so distracted by the cares of the world and all of the demands of the holiday season. But Lord, we pray that today and this month would be a month of reflecting upon all that you have done for us, Lord God. So Father, we do pray now that you would speak to us through your word and that you would enable us to understand more of you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin to walk um, through these, uh, through five significant passages regarding Advent over the, uh, the next four Sundays, I want to begin with just explaining a, a little bit about Advent and what we're doing and the, the wreath that you see up front. I know that uh, not everyone here comes from a background where you do that and maybe you aren't familiar uh, with it. The, of course, the word Advent itself simply means coming, and so when we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating the first coming of Christ which occurred 2,000 years ago, there will be a second advent, and that will be the return of Christ when he comes again. The advent wreath and the lighting of the candles is a tradition that goes back at least to the early 1800s that we are aware of. It is believed that this tradition began in Germany, and uh, each Sunday we're going we're gonna to light one additional candle, so uh, today we lit one, and then next week we'll light two, and then the following week we'll light three. And the idea is that it reminds us of the light of the world uh, throughout redemptive history, beginning with Genesis 3.15, where the promise is given. And as we move through uh, redemptive history, as we move through the Old Testament, that light becomes brighter and brighter and brighter until it culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And so on our fifth Advent Sunday, which will be Christmas Day, we will have all five of the candles lit. And so the candles that are in the wreath in front of us, you'll notice that there are three purple candles, each of these representing royalty, purple representing the color of royalty. Christ, of course, is the newborn king who comes into the world. Three candles representing the three gifts that were given to him at his birth. Some might say also representing the three nails with which our king was crucified and suffered and died on our behalf. There is one pink candle which will be lit on the third uh, 
Sunday, and that uh, it's pink because it represents joy. Christ, the rose of Sharon, who comes into the world and brings joy to humanity. And then, of course, the central white candle is the Christ candle that will be lit on Christmas morning. So all of this is simply designed to visually remind us of what Christmas really is all about. It's not about the tree. It's not about the decorations. It's not about the gifts or the Christmas cards. But ultimately, um, we celebrate the birth of Christ, our King. Of course, this is something we should celebrate all year long. But it is nice, at least in the United States and Western nations, there is a time of Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ, our King. And so the theme of our Advent services this year is promise made, promise fulfilled. What we plan to do or what I plan to do is uh, over the next uh, four Sundays after today is we're going to trace the promise of God. There's a promise that God makes to his people to send a redeemer. And then throughout all of the Old Testament, God sovereignly preserves that promise and brings that promise to fruition in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Of course, all of this is a result of God's sovereign grace. It's nothing that we deserve. It's nothing that we have earned. But God simply does this for humanity because he is rich in mercy and love. And so obviously the only place to begin This journey, then, is Genesis 3.15, where the promise is um, hinted at regarding the coming of a Redeemer that God would someday send. But before we can fully understand and appreciate the promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15, we really need to understand the context in which that promise was given in order to fully understand it and to fully appreciate it. So I'm going to spend about half the time really just looking at the context, and then I'll spend the rest of the time looking at verses 14 and 15. And so beginning in verse 1, we read this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the the Lord God had made. Now, so here we see the devil possessing the serpent, and he is speaking through the serpent. Of course, it always raises the question, you know, why does the devil do this in the first place? I mean, why not just talk directly to Eve? Why possess a poor animal that had done nothing wrong and use him as an instrument to communicate with Eve? We don't really know. The Bible never actually answers that question for us. There are some theories, of course. It may be that, uh, you know, Satan did not want to uh, um, upset Eve by uh, appearing to her in all of his uh, uh, hideousness and revealing his true self to Eve. Uh, Obviously, Eve had never actually seen the devil before. She doesn't know what he looks like, Uh, likely does not even know that he exists, but she would have been familiar with snakes, and she would not have been afraid of snakes, unlike today, right? Prior to the fall, when there is no sin or death or suffering or pain or misery, Adam and Eve would not 
have been afraid of serpents. It would have been one creature just like all of the other creatures. And so, of course, this serpent climbs up into a tree. And the devil uses the serpent to begin to speak to Eve. Now, why Eve doesn't find it peculiar that a serpent is talking to her is another mystery that can't really be answered, but it's really no different than Balaam talking to his donkey in Numbers chapter 22. Apparently, both Eve and Balaam are so struck by the fact that an animal is speaking to them that they simply engage in the conversation because this is a curious thing. And so Eve begins to talk to the serpent. But we know that this is Satan speaking through the creature, right? The serpent itself is not the devil. It is the devil who has taken possession of this serpent because we know from passages like Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 to 16, those passages make it clear that Satan is a fallen angel. He existed prior to the creation of Adam and Eve. He is a fallen creature. Of course, sin does not come into the world, right? So sin occurs before Adam and Eve. The angels rebel against God. Satan rebels against God. But sin does not come into the world through them because angels are not humans. They are not federal representatives of humanity. They are their own category of creation. Sin comes into the world through Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve are created as the federal representatives of all of humanity and of all mankind. So Satan simply possesses this serpent and begins to speak through the creature to Adam and Eve. And he says to them, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Interesting statement. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, this is a common tactic of the devil. <clears throat> he takes some truth of God and twists it just slightly, just enough to lead people astray. You know, that's what we see in most of liberal evangelicalism today. It's not that they outright deny the Bible. It's not that they don't use the Bible at all. It's not that they don't read it. But they simply don't take it at face value. They take what God has said and they slightly shift it just, just enough so that it sounds legitimate. Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, of course, you know, the answer to that is no. God didn't say that. In fact, God said nearly the opposite. He says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. But this is a tactic that the devil continues to use even today. 
He's trying to get Eve and Adam to question God's word. Question God's word. Is this really what God has said? He's trying to get Adam and Eve to understand, or at least he's trying to portray God as being harsh. This is too much for God to ask of you. Didn't God say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, but that does sound kind of harsh. And maybe God is being harsh. In the end, the devil wants Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God. You see, God doesn't really care about you that much. Because if he did, he would not put any restrictions on you whatsoever. If he truly loved you, if he truly cared about you, isn't that what we hear today? God is so loving, he wouldn't put any restrictions on me. He'd let me live and behave any way I want I keep saying that the devil is talking to Adam and Eve because understand that every word you that you see in verses one through five, as you read through that, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the good and knowledge. Verse four, you will not surely die. Verse five, God knows that when you eat of it, all of those you's in the Hebrew are in the plural. So he's talking to more than one. Adam and Eve are both standing there together, but Eve is doing all the talking. So then we read in verses two to three. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she corrects him. No, no, that's not right. We can't eat from the fruit of the trees. But God said, you shall not eat of any of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So it's interesting that we see here the first occurrence of legalism in redemptive history. You see, because God didn't say you can't touch it. He simply said, don't eat it. But you see, that's what legalism does. Legalism adds to what God has commanded. Regardless of what the reason for it is, and quite oftentimes the reason is, well, it's better to be safe than sorry. The trouble with that when we begin to add to Scripture is that it's not long before we begin to view these additional principles as Scripture. You know, that's what happened with Judaism throughout the Old Testament and even today. God says, don't violate the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. Cease from all your work on the Sabbath. The Jews said, well, what does that mean to work? What does that look like? We need to rightly interpret this for the people. And so they begin to develop what start out as guidelines, interpretive opinions. But before long, 
you were at the risk of being stoned for violating these guidelines. And so, for example, under rabbinic law, you could go for a walk on the Sabbath, but you could not walk farther than half a mile. Less than half a mile of a walk on the Sabbath is a stroll. Beyond that, you have broken the Sabbath. You have sinned against God. And if you go for this walk, you cannot carry anything. If you carry a jar with you, you're violating the Sabbath, even if you only go out to check your mail. If your baby is crying, you can pick your baby up. But if you pick your baby up and your baby is holding something in his hand, you have violated the Sabbath. You have worked on the Sabbath. Legalism. The problem with legalism in any form is this, is that it implies that God's word alone is inadequate. It's insufficient. It's not enough. God didn't give us enough in order to truly be righteous in his eyes. And so we seek to add to what God Spoken. This is what Eve is doing. God says we shall not touch it lest we die. But that is not what God said. So then the conversation continues in verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open." And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You won't surely die. God doesn't mean that. Don't take him so seriously. Don't take him so literally. Christians continue to fall prey to this tactic today, don't we? We see it almost every Sunday. In many churches, we may not see it, but we know that it happens. The Bible says that you ought not to take of the Lord's Supper if you are living in open sin against God. Or if you are a believer who is dealing with unrepentant sin in your life, or you may become sick and some have even Yet I know that often people will sit there and say, surely, that's not what that means. The devil whispers into your ear and says, that's not, don't take God so literally. Don't take God so seriously. You won't actually die if you do that. Or passages like 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands are commanded to live with your wives in an understanding way. Honor them as the weaker vessel, lest your prayers not be answered. The devil whispers in our ears, come on, God doesn't really mean that. Like your prayer, he's really not going to answer your prayers if you don't treat your wife a certain way. Or how about Matthew 16 or Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus commands that if we do not forgive those who have sinned against us, God will not forgive us. The 
devil whispers in our ear, God isn't going to really withhold forgiveness from you. Come on, you've said the prayer, you've been baptized, you go to church, you do everything else that you're supposed to do. You don't have to forgive that person. You'll be all right. You will not surely die, the devil says. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. What does that mean? It's not, it does not mean that God himself engages in acts of evil. What he means that you will be like God knowing good and evil is that you will have a personal knowledge and experience of good and evil as God does. God has seen evil up close. He has seen what Satan can do. He has seen what Satan and his cronies are capable of. He has a personal knowledge and experience of good and evil. But see, the problem is Adam and Eve are not capable of handling such knowledge because they are not God. The knowledge of good and evil in the possession of Adam and Eve is like a scalpel in the hands of a toddler. See, a scalpel can be quite dangerous. It is sharp. It is razor sharp. But in the hands of a trained surgeon can bring about great good and great healing. But a scalpel in the hands of a toddler is dangerous because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to handle it. Now imagine a scalpel in the hands of millions of toddlers around the world running around, injuring themselves, injuring each other. That is what sin did when it entered the world. But then we read in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he Couldn't resist. It was physically appealing. It was good for food. Boy, that looks delicious. That's the one fruit I've not tried. I've tried all the others, but what does that one taste like, I wonder? It was visually appealing, a delight to the eyes. And it appealed to their pride. It was desirable to make one you see, that sin of Adam and Eve was not actually biting the fruit. The sin of Adam and Eve actually occurred before they even laid hands on the fruit. The sin of Adam and Eve was pride and covetedness, which occurred in the heart. They wanted to be like God. They wanted more than what God had given them, they were not content with their station in life. They believed in their mind, we deserve more. God is keeping something from us. Does this sound familiar to anybody? 
Does anybody else other than myself struggle with these sort of things? This is a universal sin problem. God, I deserve more than the husband you've given me. I deserve better than the wife you've given me. I deserve more than the job I have. I deserve more. And we covet. We are prideful because we think God has not given us our just deserts. So we groan, we moan, and we murmur. So they ate from the tree. Verse 7, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's an interesting statement when you think about it. What did that mean? They ate from the fruit, and suddenly they knew they were naked. Does it mean that before the fall, when they looked at each other, from the neck down was just blurry? Like they had no idea they weren't actually wearing clothes. Suddenly they thought, oh my word, all this time I thought you were dressed. This is the most tragic verse in the entire Bible. When it comes to understanding what sin does. Because here's what it means that they knew that they were naked and covered themselves. Sin warps our minds and our perception. Prior to the fall, prior to the fall, both Adam and Eve truly lived solely for God and for his pleasure and for each other and for each other's pleasure. Adam lived solely for the enjoyment of God and for the enjoyment of Eve. And Eve lived solely for the enjoyment of God and the enjoyment of her husband. They were completely, unequivocally selfless in every possible way. When sin enters into the world, all of that is turned on its head. All of that is reversed. You see, post-fall, all human beings, all human beings in every culture, in every country, around the world, throughout all of world history, all human beings are infatuated with the right to privacy. My thoughts, my beliefs, you have no business tinkering with my thoughts, my beliefs, my possessions, my home, my stuff, my body. Nobody has a right to my things without my permission. This is mine. Adam and Eve thought the complete opposite. All the time. Eve thought to herself, my body and the whole of who I am as a person belongs to God and you. Adam thought to himself, my body and the whole of myself as a person, all that I am belongs completely and wholly to God and to you, Eve. Sin entered the world and suddenly they become 
completely inwardly focused. Don't look at me. I didn't give you permission to look at me. This is my body. This, is, this belongs to me. Stay away. They not only covered themselves, in a sense, hid from each other with clothing, they hid from God. What they said to each other, they began saying to God, stay away. Don't look at me unless I grant you permission. Sins turn Adam and Eve from being completely selfless to being completely selfish. And that is the universal human dilemma. We then read in verses 8 to 11, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Two things that are honestly a bit puzzling about this verse. How did they hear the sound of God walking in the garden? Clearly, we are told in the Bible that God is spirit. So how did they hear the sound of God walking in the garden? The only explanation is that the Bible here is using what is known as anthropomorphic language in order to help us understand some sort of human reality, some sort of human experience that Adam and Eve somehow sensed and knew that God was approaching. Now, what does that mean? Anthropomorphic comes from two Greek words. The first is anthros, which means man, and morphos, which means to change, right? Morphology. We talk about that when we talk about butterflies. You're familiar with anthropomorphic language, one of the most well-known is Isaiah 66, 1, where God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Well, we know that God doesn't have legs. Right? God doesn't have feet. That verse is not intended to make us believe that God truly is sitting in heaven and he's got his feet on planet earth. But it's designed to give us an idea of just how massive God is. If he were physical, the earth would simply be his footstool. This is anthropomorphic language. Second, why does God ask, where are you? Or who told you that you were naked? Or have you eaten from the forbidden tree? God is all-knowing. He knew the answer to these questions. Why ask the question? He knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. He knew exactly what they had done, and he knew why they had done it. So why Simply, God wants to give them a chance to come clean, to confess, to admit their guilt, to be honest about what they had done wrong. And we know that as parents, right? We do this all the time. When you're in the living room and you hear the rustling of what sounds like a potato chip bag coming from the kitchen, your toddler is in the kitchen. And that's to our advantage, right? Because toddlers don't know that sound travels. So you go in there, right? And there they are climbing up into the pantry. They've got the bag of chips in one hand, and you ask, what are you doing? 
course, we know what they're doing. We know exactly what they're doing. It's obvious what they're doing. We knew what they were doing when we heard the sound, didn't we? We know what they're up to. But we asked a question because we want to give them an opportunity to be honest, to come clean, to tell the truth. So does Adam take advantage of that opportunity? Verse 12. The man said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He doesn't. He blames God. The woman that you gave me, right? You gave it to me. It is her fault. Adam is doing what we continue to do today. Adam is a victim. It's not his fault. It's God's fault. It's the woman's fault. But it's not his. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She does the same thing. It's the serpent's fault, which means, God, that it's your fault because you created the serpent. Everybody's blaming God and everybody's blaming somebody else. They're all pointing their finger at each other and throwing everybody else under the bus. And so we read in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your Now, there's some debate regarding verse 14, what this means when God curses the serpent. Cursed are you above all the livestock. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Some argue that serpents once had legs and walked upright, that after the curse, they lost their legs and now they crawl. The trouble is, we know that serpents don't actually eat dust, so what does that mean, that you will eat dust? They don't eat dirt. The other trouble is, why curse the serpent when truly the serpent is the only innocent victim in this whole matter, right? The devil took possession of him and speaks through him, so why curse this poor animal that was just a tool of the serpent? In other views, when God curses the serpent above all livestock, he is simply stating a fact that the serpent will be the most despised of all land animals. And that is true today. If you don't count insects, all land animals, serpents, snakes, are uh, the most feared among people. People hate snakes. It doesn't matter if it's friendly or not. All snakes are evil. Right? Kill them all. You will be the most despised. Thus, more likely, when God says, on your belly you shall go, it is likely a change in significance and not a change in existence. In other words, the snake was a snake who already crawled. But now, when you crawl and people see you crawling, they will remember this event. They will be reminded of the fall when they look at you the serpent, and thus you'll be despised. It's a change in significance, not a change in existence. A classic example is the rainbow. After the flood, God doesn't create the rainbow. We're not told he creates the rainbow. 
there is a rainbow, and he says, look to the rainbow. That will be a sign of the covenant that I make between you and all of creation. It's a change in significance, not a change in existence. But now we come to the main point of our message, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his now, at first reading, it seems that God is going to put enmity between snakes and all humanity, right? That's what it sounds like. He's talking to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But it becomes clear what is meant when we notice that the text suddenly shifts to singular pronouns at the end of the verse. And he, that's a singular pronoun, he shall bruise your head, your is in the singular, and you, in the singular, shall bruise his head, which is also in the singular. God clearly has in mind two particular individuals. God has in mind two people that he is referring to. So then what is meant in the first half of verse 15? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God is communicating two truths. God is communicating two truths. On the one hand, from this day forward, God is saying, there will be two spiritual lines of humanity running throughout all of redemptive history. The offspring of Satan, spiritually speaking, the offspring of Satan, and the offspring of the woman, that is the people of God. And that as these two lines of humanity, the spiritual descendants of Satan and the people of God, as these two lines of humanity run throughout all of redemptive history, there will always be animosity between the two. There will be enmity and strife between these two lines of Humanity. We see that immediately with Cain and Abel. Abel worshiped God rightly. Cain didn't. Cain kills Abel. Jesus refers to this in John chapter 8, verses 44, one verse. I'll just read it to you. He's talking to you, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He says, you're of your father, the devil. Jesus is hearkening back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The second truth that God is communicating is that from the offspring of the woman, there will come one who will bruise or strike the head of the serpent while the serpent will merely strike or bruise the head of the seed of the woman. The New Testament echoes this kind of language from Genesis 3.15 speaking about the devil. You can just write these down if you're taking notes. Romans 16, verse 20. Also, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. 
Those verses make clear that the serpent here is in fact Satan. But from this point on, from this point on, the story of the Bible is about tracing the seed of the woman throughout all of redemptive history, throughout history until the promise is fulfilled in Christ. And we will see that over and over again. For example, Genesis chapter 12. Scripture says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all nations. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 14 clearly understands that whom God is talking about is Christ himself. Christ is the seed of Abraham who becomes a blessing to all nations as the gospel goes forward from the land of Palestine. Galatians 3 16, Paul writes this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And then we read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, echoing the words of Genesis 3.15. Born of a woman, born under the law, listen, to redeem those who were born under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The time was right. God brought about the fulfillment of the promise given thousands of years ago In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Christ came into the world. What is amazing is that Adam and Eve had just committed a most egregious sin. They had committed cosmic treason against their creator. And yet, God curses them, yes, but his anger is tempered with mercy and grace. And in the midst of cursing the serpent, cursing the man, cursing the woman, God makes a promise. You ruined this, but I'm going to fix it. I am going to send a redeemer to someday fix what Adam and Eve have ruined. It's for this reason that Genesis 3.15 is often referred to as the proto-evangelium. Latin, proto-first, evangelium, gospel, the first gospel. Is right there in the garden, in the fall, Genesis 3, 15. Christ the Messiah is born into the world to do this very thing for us. To cover our shame and to fix what sin has distorted. And this is what we celebrate during 